Hiya, pal. Got an idea. All right, mate, go on. I think we need to evolve the podcast. All right, what you got in mind? Well, why don't we just start recording all the chats we have when we're talking about leadership? Okay, what are we going to call it? Sense makers. Sense makers. Love it. And have we got a backer? Of course we have. Tsunami Sport. Quality. When are we starting? Now, get this end round and I'll put kettle on. Top man, I'll be round in five. Stefan Jones is the last dual professional sportsman in the United Kingdom, having played professional rugby for three years and 20 years as a professional cricketer. He is currently the director of sport performance at a private school in England and a global fast bowling consultant. He's the fast bowling development coach for the Rajasthan Royals in the IPL, as well as consulting for individual fast bowlers, javelin throwers and pitchers around the world. Stefan is in a unique position, having played professional sport He's a qualified sports scientist and a strength and conditioning coach. His methods are innovative and heavily based on sports science. And Stefan has developed a reputation as an outside-the-box thinker. So, Stefan, welcome to the show. And how on earth do you fit in all the jobs that you do? Yeah, I'm. thank you for having me, firstly. Um, yeah, it's busy. It, it is busy because uh, I was just having a lay-in this morning and then remembered that I've got a podcast. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, it, it is busy. I rely on my calendar, but I, I love what I do, man. I, I love uh, spreading spreading the word and sharing knowledge. You know, there's no point being the most intelligent person in your own in your own head. You need to share the knowledge. And 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 that journey, then, Stefan, give give our listeners a bit of an insight into maybe where you grew up and how you got into professional sport, and then slowly how it's developed into teaching and coaching. Yeah. So uh, that's a good question because, um, and you guys will know, I, I have a big thing at the minute about uh, specialising too early with kids, and pushing into a sort of uh, professional, um, professional sort of framework, network, programme, pathway, whatever you want to call it, too early. So I never set out to be a professional sportsman. So I set out, firstly, I was going to be an architect, but then realized I needed to do maths and physics. I wish I did physics at school, to be honest, because it would have been helpful for my biomechanics now, so I've had to learn <laughs> later on. I wish I listened in school. Um, but then I had a good uh, PE teacher at school who was an outstanding, old-fashioned PE teacher, uh, and it was very much rugby. We, we, uh, our school was Stradi Comprehensive School. Our school governor Stradi was next door to Stradi Park with the Scarlets. So it was rugby, no cricket or, or anything. Um, and then I just played. And, you know, I'm big into my neurotypement at the minute with neurotransmitters. So it was a very dopamine rich environment where I, I learned from playing. You know, if I fell down, down the park with my mates, you know, it wasn't mum and dad there to pick me up or whatever. It was, so it was a very dopamine rich environment, which is what then uh, allowed me to be develop my creativity. Uh, and when I played rugby, I was, I was very creative. I was actually a better rugby player than, than a cricketer. 
Um, but I just didn't like tackling because um, I was worried about my cricket career, cricket season, because it was it was rugby and cricket, and you split on one, stopped on one, and then you played the other. Uh, but I started late. I only started playing when I was thirteen, which some people find extraordinary. You know, at school now, I got these prep school parents who were worried about so and so and wanting feedback on their ten-year-old child, and I'm going. It's it's incredible, you know. It's so I, I watched my um, watched my dad coach, watched my dad play rugby and cricket, and then one day someone said, "Shouldn't you be playing now?" And then I did. Very next week, I played in a team, and then that's how it worked all the way through. Um, I played uh, cricket in the summer, rugby in the winter. I got my Welsh junior caps for rugby, international youth, 20s, 19, 18. Uh, then for cricket, I had the Morgan contract. I voted the Young Player of the Year in, in the Hall of Wales when I was 16. And then the decision, then I went to Loughborough University. And then the decision had to come between both of them. And that Glamorgan wanted me to decide between um, rugby and cricket. Uh, because I was going to a uh, pre-season tour uh, in Portugal with Cambridge University for rugby. And I wanted to go. Obviously, Cambridge University was was big. It still is big, isn't it, to get your blues and stuff. Um, and I said, no, I'm not going to decide. And that's where it was. I just I stopped with Glamorgan. I didn't have a contract, cricket contract or rugby contract, going into Cambridge. And then I came out of Cambridge with a contract for Somerset and a contract for Bristol Rugby. Um, so it was, I did that for two years, but it, it just got a bit silly. And it, it, there's people out there now who, who are probably more talented than I was, but it's not possible now. You you can't um, combine the both because the seasons just overlap. There's no off season anymore in any one of them, to be honest. Uh, but it got to a stage where I remember bowling 20 overs for Somerset, then having to get in the car, go up to Bristol, play, a, do a full contact session, which I hated, and then uh, travel from there to the Oval to play a game for Somerset at the Oval, uh, and then play play against, uh, have a day off, and then play against Wasps, and it was like mm, this is this is just not right. This mad. I did it for two years, enjoyed it, but then um, yeah, I, I was left out of. 1999 uh, CNG trophy for Somerset, uh, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to give it a focus now. I'm going to focus on cricket because I don't want to be left out again. And then I retired in 2000 and what, 2010, I think, or 2011. So, yeah, I had a good innings. There's a few exit points there that we can look at. I'm quite interested in the creativity that you mentioned and, and dopamine-rich environments. And yeah. kids nowadays, and, and my kids especially, they, they've been overcoached. They, they've, they've not been allowed to play out like we used to as kids. How, how important is it that we can create opportunities for our young people to just play and not to be coached all the time? Yeah, there's a couple of things. And, you know, children can't be bored these days they just always want to be entertained to do this or do that and uh, 
I, I haven't got anything to do. You know, my two daughters are the same, but it's okay to be bored. It's okay yeah. to find creative ways to entertain yourself without having an external sort of uh, someone giving you feedback and the reward mechanism. And so I just think, well, my opinion, which is which is controversial, but I am Welsh. We, we normally are, to be honest. It is, um, there shouldn't be any representative sport before the age of 16. It's, wow. it, serves, it serves no purpose. It serves uh, the ego of, of the coach. And what you'll normally find is that coach didn't have a great career. This is generalized, obviously. There's some great people out there. Didn't have, uh, was unfulfilled in their career and are now living their, their continued playing career through kids. Uh, and that's not right. You know, it's not right that we should be limiting that, that the tier to the elite at that age. It's, it's down to the stages of maturation. And what you'll normally find as the ones in, ones in the pathway of that age are just early developers. And, it, and, and, it, and it's fine if you have an intelligent or a well thought out coach and pathway who actually value skill, technique, uh, teamwork, uh, mental resilience and that sort of stuff, I value that more than just being nine foot two, <laughs> built like Arno Schwarzenegger and taking crash balls at the age of 11 and scoring 900 tries, you know, in a rugby or a netball, netball uh, goal shooter who's about five foot taller than everyone else and just dunks it in the net. Well, that's not good for anyone. It's not good for that individual because they're not learning all the skills. They're, they're probably just learning one basic closed skill. Uh, and it's also not good for the others who will ultimately drop out uh, because at the end of the day, at that, at that age, it's about participation. It's about development. And at school, you know, with, we, have, we have pathways. We have different pathways. And, but it, it's, it's about participation. And what I say... Uh, like I did an article uh, a while ago, which was every child who enters your school is already talented. That's down to their parents. That's 50% uh, DNA, you know, 40, what is it? 49% phenotypes, strength phenotypes is through your parents. Uh, it's the same with speed. So they're already talented. Let's not market your program on getting that one elite to play for England or if they're really good to play for Wales. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it, it's about squeezing the talent sponge. It's about getting as much out of every child, whatever level that is. And, and you know, it, it is, it's hard to do once you know, we play some local schools, one of them in particular, who, who genuinely just want the elite. They even had it on the job advert. Uh, results driven that that's all they want and we have to play them we we lose against them we win sometimes and then uh, but I go do you know what our process is far better we develop the well-rounded child who you know small things and and they go on about competition and I'm the most competitive guys out there you know I play two professional sports if I didn't do well, I was sacked. I had to find a way to feed my kids. So 
don't talk to me about competition and building a snowflake John generation. It's not about that. I don't need a tap on my shoulder to say, well done as a coach. I did all right. You know, <laughs> I'm happy with my CV at the minute. I, I don't need uh, an under lab B cricket team to be winning a game on a, on a Wednesday afternoon or a Saturday morning just to justify my existence as a coach, director of sport. That's fine. You know, as long as they get something out of their experience with me, uh, learning new skills, you know, what I call the unmeasurables, playing for your team, you know, we, we'd, we'd stick the early developer out in the wing. Okay, let's everyone else have to get him the ball. Or we'll stick, or we'll put the, the early developing batter, batsman, batswoman, you know, down the order. So everyone else get contributes, but then actually that early developer is still going to have to have an impact. Can they know, clear the ropes and get 20 off the last over? Now I'm testing you while everyone else is participating. And can that early developer, bowler, bowl the last over? So, in, in, so if people look at it that way, everyone is getting something out of it, but actually that child who's, who's developed early is, is just being challenged a bit more. Can you nail six Yorkers? You know, and that just, just small things, small things like that. But it's about playing. It's not about being constrained by uh, certain um, guidelines when you're playing or for your school. It, it's uh, so what I say to our pupils and our, our teachers, we need to lose three out of 10 games. You know, you learn more from losing than you do from winning. So we have a fixture card that we have some that we we might win now and again, if we get it right in terms of our coaching and, um, or, and then we have some that we will, it'll be a good game, but we're more likely to win. But then we have three then that we got absolutely no chance of winning. So it's really important that it's easy, you know, the worst thing that's, that's out there is the league tables. You know, someone explained to me how you can be top 10 in a league table during COVID. We've had lockdown. <laughs> well, I don't, I honestly just, when that came out, when, when, that, when that was made public a couple of months ago and there was the top 100 schools, we, I, I don't know if you've got to enter or whatever. And, and then I was looking down. So what is the criteria for that? Because we've been on lockdown. So there's nobody's played anything. So we had a rugby season, we had a rugby season and a girls hockey season. So what you're telling me that to get top five on that list, you've had to have given a hundred percent scholarship to an early development child in the center or or a, a gun hockey player who's probably an early developer as well. And that's going to get, I know you market yourself on that league table. And I was just like, I, I, I found that really hard, if I'm honest, because there was a couple of schools in this vicinity that, that were on there. And I'm going, so what, what, you, what is your criteria for getting on that? If it's remote learning, then do you know what? We did, we did all right. Wellington School did all right. We had live lessons. Every lesson was live. We had remote learning. The talented athlete pathway, which we have because it is a separate pathway, had their own program. You know, I had um, 
I had 10 speakers on webinars from uh, Marcus Triscothic to um, Courtney Hill to a local to this the leader of the fire service in the southwest you know it's <laughs> we did all right but if you're judging it on rugby and hockey early season then it was just as you can probably tell that rattled me a bit because that was just <laughs> <laughs> that, that that was just very wrong, and the league tables for school. But I I just don't get that. It's education, you know. The clue is in clue is in the title. We're there to educate. It's not performance, uh, and it's not about building a pathway. See, even my dog is getting angry. Look, you can hear her in the background. <laughs> I want to uh, <laughs> I want to come back to that in a little bit, Stefan. The performance oh, versus Lord. education. Oh, you know I'm going to get me angry. Before that, let's give <laughs> let's give you a breather and take you back a few steps. The um, you mentioned earlier the early specialisation argument, and obviously that isn't a new discussion. That's been something that's bubbled for for years and years. But you've been really specific in saying 16 years old. Why why do you think it, it's 16 years old where that becomes something that's a lot more accessible and a lot more um, a lot more acceptable for students to start to access at that age. Well, it's sixth form, isn't it? So it, it's it's entry into sixth form, which is one thing. Um, but also, you know, Mother Nature has dealt her cards. Then that that's pretty much you're done. So it's it's going to become about skill, tactical awareness, technique. You know, I have stages. Um, in my coaching methodology that the early phase between sort of years 9, 10 and 11, I'm sorry, yeah, not year groups, but ages 9, 10, 11, it's about technique. It's about technique and um, grooving the right technique for them, not for anyone else copying a model or anything, just find what is the best way for them to, for cricket, deliver a cricket ball based on their anthropometry, based on their physical abilities. And then you have a stage, you have windows of opportunity. You know, you have two speed windows uh, between sort of ages uh, eight and nine, and then what is it, 13, 14, where that's all we do is speed. Speed, speed, we run, we jump. And then after that, we introduce more constraints and then more uh, gym-based stuff. So there's there's methodology in there. There's a process we need to follow, and that can get clouded if we're if we have a twelve-year-old twelve-year-old girl who's who wants to play district cricket. Don't get me started on that. District cricket um, uh, in this area. So that will mean that she might miss a school's training or a school fixture because they, they think that's the right pathway. So what I say to um, parents is this. So every Saturday we play, in terms of fixtures, it's an exam. So what other aspect of school would they have an exam every week? So it doesn't happen. They have an exam at the end. So all the rest of it. So for us, it's about playing um, comp competition, competitive fixtures. We, we're, we're too fast, too quick in pushing 
competition to our kids. They can't, they go from one game to the other, um, just papering over cracks, just finding a way to, to flourish in competition. And that might mean giving it to the early developer. So we need, we need the bits in the middle to prepare for games, for everyone to improve their skills, to learn more about the game. And it's the same, it's the same with um, coming into pathways. Going so, into sorry. So no, I was I was just going to add there just to try and contextualise what you're saying. There's there's an assumption that from going from game to game and papering over papering over the cracks as you call it doesn't allow children the time to really reflect and consider what they need to improve and where to go. Are you saying therefore a better model is working towards competition and putting competition in a in a shorter time scale? So you know independent schools, international schools, very similar like this. Is the model better to be a fixture every week with learning and reflection in between or build up towards a competition over the course of two or three days and then go again? Or are neither of those the better option? Yeah, that, I would say the second one. So people forget competition is contextual. So me against you is competition. So when they go, well, they don't get any competition and challenge well, it's up to you then as a coach to upskill your knowledge and find out how you can make in-house uh, learn by playing or, or whatever you want to call it, make that program a better. But for, because if it was just about the kids uh, and them learning by doing and competition, then cool. I, I'm fine with playing every Saturday. You put it into practice, but we know it's not. It's about school against school. It's about league tables. It's about parents when they have coffee with each other on coffee morning, just saying my school is better than yours. And that, because that happens. And it, it doesn't become about the ch ch child itself. It becomes about the environment around them. But I, but I do strongly believe in the festival sort of model where we go. So for our prep school, I've asked that we, we only play one every three weeks. So we have two weeks training. Because if, if, for example, uh, the, the games are on, uh, on a Wednesday, so, so that's, that's the training session as well. Say if we have a double, we have two hours sport on a Wednesday. Well, if you play every Wednesday, when are you going to be able to coach them? So what I said was, let's, let's have two weeks where we train and then we play a fixture. Then, then, yes, okay, they only have five or six fixtures a summer. But you know what? We've probably increased their, their time on task for, in learning, open, closed loop skills, whatever you want to call them, by about 50%. And that's what it's, that's what it's about, truly, as in a school. It's about learning skills. So I do prefer a model of three-week three week, um teaching, coaching block, then a festival, and let's go again. And it's, it's not every Saturday exam. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. That, that phrase exam sorts to, starts to put it into context a little bit. And I think, I think there's a counter argument for that. I think obviously looking at it from a point of view of having you two or three weeks to be able to practice and then a week to put that into context, that suggests, doesn't it, a, a, a value of what the outcome of that yeah. game is. 
to look at that another way, would your fixtures every week without a focus on the outcome be more around, well, actually, we're going to play every week because that gives you more access and it gives you more opportunity to play. We're not going to be worried about what the result is, but we learn through the process of playing. Does that give an opportunity for children to feel a little bit less anxious about performing, as it were, and understand that those performances are an extension to practice and not necessarily... Uh, a final sort of assessment as opposed to that model where they feel like they're building up to something that does add the anxiety to it. I'm just trying to look at it from another angle to see if that's a reasonable argument as well. Yeah, no, it is a great argument and I also agree with that. But it, it depends on their stage of development, isn't it? it? It depends where they are, what age they are. They for, And that would be... And again, it depends on what you're trying to do what 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 is the environment that you're trying to uh, nurture your your kids and and the schools around you the teams it's all right for me you know I, i'm a pretty um, maverick director of sport i rip the rule book up and we do it that's fine but i expect my my pupils to play against a school which has no concept of that it, it's about it's about winning 80 nil. And that is when issues start. Like, if, if we have sometimes, or, or, as, a, as a group of schools, gone, actually, there's no fixtures here. There's no results. Let's play festivals. And that was every week. And that was awesome. But when you have schools who want to win 100, not that it happens down here, then issues start. It's about communications okay. and putting the pupils at the heart of things. Yeah, so if, if I'm understanding you correctly, the idea of playing against another school in earnest isn't, isn't a bad thing, it isn't a negative thing. It's what, what rides on that. It's actually saying, if we're going to meet each, other, meet each other every week and we're going to play for the purpose of child development, for the purpose of camaraderie, for the purpose of essential skills development, for the purpose of technique and tactics, great. If it's to, to compete and try and win, then actually at any age under 16, that's just not where we want to be. Oh, exactly. Okay. Exactly right. That, that's, that's where, that's where I, I come from with everything, really. It's about a child-centered approach, isn't it? Not, it's, there's, a, there's a nasty mix between politics. I'm at a private school, okay? So politics, business, uh, and money. It, it's... <laughs> an education you know that's a nasty mix for kids to be involved in so i just want to create a bubble around them that they leave school playing every different sport enjoying different sport shaking the hands with the referee with the umpire at, at the end of the game not doing man cards and that sort of stuff i've had i've had played in games where they've done that now well having watched it in the ipl when when um, Ashwin run out Josh Butler, you know, small things like that. And so schools become a smaller uh, version of professional sport. And that's not right. Yeah, I, I fully agree with you, Stefan. I, I, I can sense there's, there's frustrations there as well, isn't there, Stefan? And we've all been through these frustrations of how do you deal with when you have to compromise your own values because of those external factors where marketing money politics parents how do you deal with that as a leader it's really tough yeah it, it is but I, i'm fortunate in, in i've got a good school 
Um, we are we weren't traditionally a big sports school, so it's very um, process driven. Um, so, uh, to be fair, anything that I, I did was good uh, in terms of sort of bringing in more exposure to the sport. The previous guys were equally good, but in terms of they played a, a more hockey-based and a separate uh, direction than what I was wanting to take us in, which was very much um, opportunity for all, so participation for all, but improving the health and well-being of, of every child. So a lot of schools now have jumped on the bandwagon, but... So when we revamped it seven years, seven years ago, and that's the thing, we're a small school. And for us to do this, the bigger schools are looking, going, hang on, what's that? And then they market it, do they? But actually everyone knows where it started. <laughs> I've, had, I've had big schools come down, you know, and those in the top five list of that school come down and see how we do it. So everyone knows that we just grabbed the bull by the horns and gone, right, this is a direction we're going. So I renamed P lessons or games lessons, I don't even know what they were called now, to well-being. So in our well-being lessons, we have a theory and a, a, a physical practical uh, module. So there's six or seven modules, depending on what year we're doing, because I like to change every three years. And then they have nutrition, diet and nutrition, and mental health and resilience. And those lessons are sat in the classroom. So depending on where you are, the P lesson, you might be sat in the classroom or actually doing some cooking. And then for the other modules, it was strength, speed, agility, energy system work. And that's every child from year five to year 11, because sixth form it becomes a different path program, they would have that. So you're gonna have a 10 year old or your 11 year old doing some switching, doing some run-specific isometrics, doing the skill stability stuff that I do, um, learning how to land properly. Um, energy system work would, it would involve actually cross-country, would involve swimming, but it's, it's sort of given a new title, so it becomes a bit sort of more fashionable as such, not the old cross-country model of a punishment. But everyone <laughs> will do it, because I genuinely don't think that Kids these days are aerobically fit enough. There's no, they, because, um, yeah, well, our, our, our children would do five hours of activity a week, whereas state school, and I fully get it, would do 30, 40 minutes. So, and then uh, we have different pathways at school, different programs where it's about performance, participation, or development. There's the long-term athlete development, and I rebranded it, so it's the, can't remember what I call it now, maybe maybe the Wellington pathway or whatever. At the bottom of it is about exploration. Then the middle part is about, uh, sorry, there's four. So exploration, participation, enhancement, and performance. And then everything we do is in that theme of that stage of development. Groundbreaking very different to a lot of, of lot of people we talk to and, it, and it's great to hear Stefan now I read your article recently where, where you talk about how PE is broken and you've got a quote in there that I really love and I'll just read it out now it's I've walked a million steps 
but yeah. that doesn't make me a champion walker. Yeah. Can you just elaborate on that? And, and it's a lot of it's coming what you've just talked about, but just give us the, the brass tacks yeah. behind that quote. Yeah, so um, I'm big into my motor learning, motor control, and Bernstein and Franz Bosch uh, and that sort of uh, mindset, really, with, with sport. Uh, got to remember that I got two hats on. One hat is direct of sport at school, on the other hat is working with the likes of Ishan Sharma, Ben Stokes, and uh, Jofra Archer. So I have two hats. That's why I don't search for winning or stuff on a Saturday for schools. But in terms of the exercises or the drill work, whatever, I know the drill gets a bad name in terms of the terminology. But for me, I still use it because it's it's my skill set then as a coach to make sure that that drill is variable and allows repetition without repetition. So every time they do an exercise, you know, with a, with a water bag or a, with an aqua bag or whatever, different perturbations, that every repetition they do is slightly different. That keeps the brain guessing, have to, the brain keeps adapting because there's one thing the brain doesn't want is monotony and boredom. If you have boredom, you have two things you have, we can consciously think about intention and attention. And you, so intention, I want to do something. So that's your one conscious thing. The, the bits in between of them become subconscious. We can't control them uh, depending on stage of learning. And then attention. So you need motivation. So if your child is not motivated, engaged, has attention, then whatever we do, they're not going to learn from. You know, the reticular activating system in the brain. So it's the door, the on button in the brain. It's not going to be activated. So they just you're just ticking a box and just talking to kids who have no idea, desire, or want to improve. So you can walk as much as you want to, but that does never mean you're going to be an expert. Every step you take has to be slightly different. So it's not repetition with repetition, which is the, the, the traditional modern, you know, the 10,000 hours rubbish that they say, that they, they talk about. It's actually repetition without repetition. Why not do half of that, 5,000 hours? That's going to be more beneficial because it's slightly different. And the, so it's dynamic systems theory, really, where the body has to um, adapt uh, to every single, uh, to adapt to the environment and it self-organizes. But I could talk, that's a whole one on its own. <laughs> so, Stefan, you, you've started, I think, to, to describe this sort of well-being idea within the lessons um, that, that you've rebranded re and that, that focus on strength, speed, energy systems, diet and nutrition, physical activity. You've brought in your long-term athletic development plan um, and rebranded that and looked at what's contextualized for, for students at your school. So what's what's the line then between P and sport? How do you clarify which one's which? Good question. There's no sport in P. There's absolutely no sport in P. So what what the traditional model, again, it's generalized and uh, apologize if we have some schools out there who have a different model. But this is the, the module of about, I don't know, the last 
100 years or whatever. So your P, P lesson will be the good players, the A team, would just go and do some extra uh, rugby, hockey, netball to prepare for the Saturday because we're playing against a local school who market their, market their school on beating us, okay? So we need to go and prepare those. And that is our target. And that's our target sport. And then the others would do your basketball, your volleyball, your dodgeball, your handball, and then maybe a three-week tag-on fitness block. And that is, that is the model. And people can disagree or whatever, but I know that that's, what's, well, that's what happens. So for me, there's two things there. It's very elitist. There's a difference between having an elite program and elitist. Everyone should have an ex, uh, access to an elite program to have to be tested. You know, we test our children six times a year to run on the 1080, to have four steps. Yes, we're fortunate to have that because that's the direction we took us down. It's not about 100% scholarships. It's about every child having access to the top, top end sports science equipment. So that is an elite program where you will do four weeks Franz Bosch stuff, where you do four weeks Altis sort of sprints program. But elitist is when 15 kids go out and have that on their own, while the other 80 will play a sport in the inside or whatever, which the, the current program or director deems not to target sport. Well, actually, basketball or cross country or volleyball is a target sport for that individual. So it's important for that person. So that, so that needs to be added on at the end of the day. So what we did, there's no sport MP. Everyone jumps, runs, sprint, tumbles, gymnastics, bang, whatever you do. It's grouped accordingly. We try to do uh, neurotyping. We try to do Myers-Briggs, so personality types. So that's how we group them because I didn't want the groups to be elitist. What happened initially, bearing in mind this is six or seven years into the program, we did the, the superheroes program. So where we had iPads and there was movement patterns, uh, Iron Man, Spider-Man, Superman and all, and all that. Um, and then we grouped them based on how they moved. And then from there, then we ranked on their movement patterns. And obviously, what happens then is that your A-team players have got normally the good movers. So the groups was very much based on sport as well. So group one was the rugby team because they can squat. And there's a reason why they're good at their sport, because they move better at a young age. So I, I wanted to get rid of that straight away. And then we went into some psychometric testing, how they learn, and that actually worked. But maybe I think it was more luck than judgment, if I'm honest. Uh, but the groups were 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 great, uh, boys and girls together, uh, and then how they learned. And what we try to do is, if you had visual learners, we put more posters up. And again, this is in my head. Uh, it, it wasn't. Um, done fully like that as such but that was the initial plan of it uh, so how they learned would be how we taught the lesson 
but again it's up to it's it's hard in a school for various constraints and budgetary but that is my that was my vision for it uh, and then the sports lessons would be period five every day and then period six would be called a performance hour so period six is your clubs and that was called the the squad session or whatever the a team session and i said no we got to get away from that terminology as well. It's a performance hour, but it's performance based on that individual. So a performance hour, club hour, might be a swimming session for a swimmer, or it might be a cross-country session for a running, tempo running session for a cross-country, but it's still performance hour for that person. But for your rugby, A team, B team, whatever, it's performance hour because you're there now because you want to improve your rugby. And then it, you, every child gets the same specialist attention for their choice, really. We can't be pushing a child to think that rugby, hockey, netball, cricket is a target sport. No, some parents might listen to this and go, well, they didn't know that. And that, that is the thing, isn't it? It's difficult to get your message out to everyone. That's why I like doing this podcast, because probably parents would be listening to me going, oh, yeah, there's a reason why you do that. That's awesome. Well done. Because actually, how do you access, you know, 300 parents? But that is, that's my methodology. That's, so we branded it, sports performance and well-being. That's what we're called now as a department. We're not a P department, we're SPW department. And each of those letter has a specific uh, purpose. Wow. I love, um, I love how you can sort of flick between education and professional sport and, and pigeonhole them in your separate boxes. How it's quite refreshing because I've not really heard many sports coaches who've played at a high level have this inclusive sort of view of sport. Where where do you think that came from? Was that a that a, a definite process of learning on your behalf, or was that just something that's always been with you? I don't know. It's a good question. You guys ask good questions, man. It's it's funny, but I genuinely have no. I'm more concerned about the journey to the game than I am the game itself. I love uh, the improvement that you see, like when I trained. Well, that's a thing, you know, when I played, I would have played professional cricket for free. You know, I, I, was, I, I got paid for doing something that I would have done anyway. Don't tell them. Well, I wouldn't have told them that, but... <laughs> But I loved training, you know, I read some of David, so my heroes were David Campisi, were Dennis Rodman for the Chicago Bulls, you know, and he was, he was a maverick, he was different. On my bag, I wrote, dare to be different. So it, it, I always wanted to be, I, I hate status quo, and that's why my coaching, my fast bowlers is slightly different, because... What's to say that that person who designed a coach education is right? He might be right, and that's awesome. But normally, it's, it's someone who was an ex-professional in the game and has now gone straight into professional coaching. 
just because you played, you can't doesn't mean you're going to be a good coach. What you'll often find is the best coaches are the ones, the the run of the mill coach uh, players who had to work hard to stay afloat, which was me. I was a manufactured cricketer. I was a manufactured bowler. I wanted so how can I be better than someone else? Well, I'd be fitter. That's control of controllables. I could be fitter, faster. So in terms of gym numbers as a cricketer, nobody will get anywhere near what I used to do. It was just ridiculous. You know, I, and knowing what I do now, I would not necessarily train the way I did, but, you know, I would train three times Christmas Day. I, I, I was a teetotaler until I was 39. I had no alcohol at all till I was 39 because I genuinely believed you couldn't be a professional sportsman and have that impaired sort of, mental function when you play in the next day or whatever so I, I made massive sacrifices when I played but it was all about the process of me being better not me beating the other person just me being as good as I can and it sounds romantic or whatever but actually that's that's how that's how I was I would to and I the rugby coaches is to pull their hair out with me because I didn't like tackling. I didn't. I would let them pass me and run after them and ankle tap them. And I put and I put put that down to actually not wanting to hurt my shoulder because tomorrow night I was in the nets for Glamorgan, you know, having a net. So I didn't want to injure my shoulder. But but I would say to them, yeah, they might score two, but I'll score four. And that was my mentality when I played rugby, was that I'd always, uh, that creativity, because I learned from watching my dad in the, I remember being in the changing rooms uh, and watching my dad give his uh, sort of pre-match and post-match talk. I would just listen to him talking. And I learned from that, as opposed to others would have been in an under 10 rugby game playing. And then maybe just maybe just watching a big boy running and scoring and going, yeah, we won again. But actually, I'm not touched the ball. Whereas I was playing in the nets where my dad was batting or on the field. I was in the nets just putting cones down, bowling. So I, that's that psyche then was is ingrained in me in that key stages around the nine, 10, 11, 12 years. So it was very much process driven of hitting the cones or kicking for posts or I couldn't pass with my left hand in university. I used to go on the road in Loughborough. I used to pass hundreds, just hundreds. Instead of doing some work in the lectures, we used to pass, but it was always, I always used to go on my left hand. So, because my left hand was the weakest. There's no point getting the good hand better. Let's make every, let's a left hand and, and now my left hand is better than my right hand. But it was always <laughs> it was always that mentality of how can I be better? Let's not worry about anyone else. Yeah, I you know what though, Stefan? I, I have these conversations with my kids all the time. And it and I'm sure you do as, as a parent as well. It's today's generation is quick fix. Yeah. It's instant gratification. We're not all yeah. wired up like you are or, or like we are in terms of that drive so how do we then as educators in this modern world 
how can we help these instant gratification adults that we seem to be producing to realize that hard work and process equals success, not just, oh, I'll go and play tennis and I expect to be able to hit the ball like Federer after three sessions. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it is a tough one. Uh, and that's all we can do is just create an environment for them to learn and hopefully work that out for themselves. Because otherwise we are just spoon feeding them and we're developing that snowflake sort of fragile generation. So for me, my coaching, it's about developing the anti-fragile, robust athlete. And that may mean, actually, I do a session where I call the chaos monkey. And I think it's from some book, I think. So it's called a chaos monkey session where they come in and they think they're doing a speed session. So a speed session as a bowler, you bowl one ball every minute, two minutes, and then you just talk and talk nonsense or whatever. And it's very <laughs> easy, very easy. But actually, where Chaos Monkey session is, right, it's probably a CrossFit session. That would, to me, would be a Chaos Monkey because there's no purpose to it. It's just the only purpose is to get you fatigued and out of the comfort zone. So now and again, I do that. So that is one way to keep them to develop robustness uh, because otherwise, you know, everything they do, they have a timetable. They, they know where to go. They have a bell which tells them that lesson is finished. Uh, yeah. uh, and it's, they have a bus to pick them up to take them home or, or a parent. And, and if, if your rugby session goes one minute over and the parents is waiting, they're not happy. So everything is, is done for them. So we need to create free thinkers and in my rugby coaching, that's how I how I do it. It's um, you know, there's no kicking. You can't kick. You need to find a harder solution to get from your try line to the 25 yard line. You know, kicking it as a kid, you can only kick 10 meters anyway. Not saying I, I probably I'm more I'm more concerned about how they can kick attacking wise. Is it a try option for them? Is it an attacking option? So you probably see my teams kick more in their 22 than in ours. So it, and, and just it's our it's up to us as coaches to create the right environment to develop that anti-fragile and um, robust athlete. But it is hard because we're we're judged by uh, results, uh, well, some are, I, I don't know how many times I can say, but I genuinely don't care if we lose on a Saturday and hopefully more people come around that way of thinking because otherwise it's only going to get worse. It really is going to get worse. So if you think that um, a parent, and I'm one of those who pay in my fees or whatever, obviously this is private school stuff as well, and I fully fully appreciate and understand the state school system, which I was. I was a state school boy. I was called Gavin Estrade, and I loved it. I loved my childhood. Absolutely. I couldn't speak any higher of my childhood for the way I was brought up and the sport and the school. Uh, and I just want my children to have the same, really. Yeah, you know, the, the arguments around snowflake generation, anti-fragile, I'm convinced every generation before us has had exactly the same conversation and said kids, <laughs> kids these days, kids these days, because the generation of teachers are always going to be a generation different to the, to the kids you're teaching. And, and you've, you've got to show 
some creativity there. You've mentioned creativity several times, Stefan, and I think that's exactly what we've got to do. You've been really brave in some of the decisions that you've talked us through that you've made at the school that you've had and some of the things where, you know, you've held your hands up and said, whether I've got it right or wrong, this is what I've tried and these are the reasons why. And no one can argue with that sort of drive behind you of wanting to support children. And I think what I want to try and get at is what gives you the advantage as somebody who's come through as a dual sportsman, as somebody who's seen and been around high-performance athletes, what has given you an advantage and an edge over arguably a, you know, a PE teacher like Alan and I that have, have been through the university system, done our PE teaching degrees, done our placements, and, and off we've gone from there. What, what's give, what gives you a bit of an edge? What gives you something different? Well, that, that's, that's a good point. And, and I'll go back to what I said at the start, I didn't start off, I didn't start my journey to be a professional sportsman. So I did my three years at Loughborough Uni, sports science. Then I went to Cambridge to do my PGC. So I was, and I did my placements in three, four different schools. So I did the same, but then at the end of it, it was like, oh, okay, well, so-and-so wants to sign you and this and that. But it's, but I, I think the understanding, firstly, is I had to work, yes, I was a professional and the last one to do both. Um, so I was okay. I was pretty talented, uh, but I was never the best. Uh, I, was, I was okay for stages in my, in my career. When I was 16, I was a pretty good rugby player and a pretty good cricketer, probably the best around in the country on both of them. But then I went through stages where Actually, I was left out of the Lord's final, having been the leading wicket taker. I was, I was always twelfth man on on us because Andy Andy Caddick and Alfonso Thomas or Shaw Willoughby and Nixon McLean were playing. So I've had to go away and sort of rethink how I train, how I coach, because the consequences of me not getting it right was sacked isn't it? it 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 was it was that it was that simple really so from that i developed the mindset of very being process driven trying to find that little that extra extra bit that new the different training method in 99 i went down the road of saq with alan pearson i found him out then he did a weighted ball program for me bowling. I put on five, six, seven, eight miles per hour in two seasons, which then gave me an advantage. And actually what it's done now is um, given me <laughs> a training method that I know works. But it's, I think the advantage for me came from the fact that if I didn't get it right, it didn't mean that my under 11 Bs on a Saturday would lose. It meant that I was out of work. So from that came that mentality of always searching for that something different. Uh, but I've, al I've always had that mentality of, um, I love working. You know, it's the books I have here now in front of me, I've done two courses this week. I just love working. I love, I love, searching for that uh, for that next bit of that's going to be different it was it was written on my bag my rugby bag dare to be different and that, 
and I'm the same with my coaching and my my teaching um, mentality, really. I think what comes through strong there is that that love of learning and that and that wanting to get better, and and that's something that's my biggest takeaway from this. Uh, we're going to wind it down now, Stefan, and we're going to do some quick fire questions to finish. Yeah, cool. We like to have a bit of fun with this one, and we, we're looking at your your three leaders in in world history that you'd love to go out for a meal with, dead or alive. Uh, Nelson Mandela, very popular choice. Um, Carwin James, yeah. Um, I wouldn't know of anyone else to be honest. What about a sport? What, what about one of your top coaches that you've worked with, Stefan, who's really inspired you? Bob Woolman. Bob Woolman. Yeah. So you got Nelson Mandela, Bob Woolman, Bob Woolman, and Karen James. I've never nice. been asked that question before. <laughs> it gets people thinking, doesn't it? It's quite nice, yeah. and it's nice to know where people like to go with it. Louis, to finish. I think I know the answer to this one. <laughs> other, than, other, other than dare to be different, Stefan, if you had a billboard at the side of a busy motorway in the UK and you're allowed to write one phrase on the billboard, what would you write? I, you know, I, I can't probably say what I, what I, <laughs> what I would say, but it, it would... Um, don't, don't, be, don't be afraid to get it wrong. Don't be afraid to get it wrong is, is a big thing that I, I sort of try and stick to uh, and that does come from dare to be different so yeah. you don't want to be you don't want to dare to be different if you're afraid of getting it wrong <laughs> yeah there's a contradiction in terms isn't it <laughs> exactly top man when we normally ask about what infinite learning means to our guest I think Stefan's really covered what infinite learning is today. <laughs> Those two phrases, right? Dare to be different and don't be afraid to get it wrong. Yeah. I think, uh, I think they're, they're phenomenal takeaways. Stefan, where can our, our listeners uh, and viewers hear more about you, from you and, and the work that you're doing? Um, so I'm big on social media. So Stefan Jones 105, so double F, uh, on uh, Instagram and Twitter. Uh, I, in, in the Southwest... Uh, and I've got my own company, peerslabglobal.com as well. So, Top man, Steph. I really enjoyed that. Thanks. And guys, uh, search YouTube, IGTV for our video content, podcast platforms for all our audio, uh, all of our audio. And uh, see us on theinfinitelearners.com for more news and, and updates. And until next time, we'll see you. Thank you very much, Stefan. Pleasure, man. Thank Top you. Man. For listening to Sensemakers, brought to you by the Infinite Learners podcast and backed by Tsunami, the number one ego kit provider for schools worldwide. You can learn more about Tsunami by, by visiting tsunami-sport.com. And if you want to hear more from the Infinite Learners, you can find us on your favorite podcast platform, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Until next time, we'll see you.